You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leaf fan, brought to you by the Hockey News. The Hockey News, established in 1947, is the authoritative source of hockey and the number one hockey publication in North America. With an ever-growing podcast network and video database on top of an already established print and digital brand, the Hockey News is there to cover all hockey major stories around the world. Visit THN.com deal to get the best value on a subscription to the Hockey News. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Lease Fan, and with me as always, my winger Ricky Squid Vibe. How are we keeping, Squid? Oh, well, I'll tell you, it's been uh, really tough lately with all this nice weather and golfing every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been... Uh, my heart's bleeding for you. Yeah, <laughs> I can, yeah, I can tell. It's uh, real, but... tough. real tough, <clears throat> real tough. Good, good, take advantage of it. I had a good 78 this morning, which uh, my That's putting was a little yep. off. My putting yep. was a little off, but... But you know what? Things are good, and uh, both get really, really busy uh, with the book coming out. Well, we'll get to that in one second. Absolutely. I'm going to give you. I'm going to. I'm going to tee up for one on that one right off the Perfect. bat. How's that? Okay. How about that little segue moving into that? But before before we get to that, let's let's touch on this little subject first. Today we're gonna we got some good response to giving some people some historical moments in leap history going back. So there's. Today, November the 14th, there's three things that I thought would be of significance to people to understand out there. November 14th, 1929, Charlie Conacher scored his first NHL goal in his first NHL game with the Leafs in the 2-2 tie against Chicago in the season opener. 1936 on November 14th, King Clancy scored on a penalty shot as the Leafs beat Chicago 6-2. It was his final goal in the NHL and a week later, the legend retired. And lastly, on November 14th in 1985, some unknown scored his ninth career hat trick for the Maple Leafs in a 6-6 tie against the Boston Bruins. I think he wore number 22. Any recall who that guy is? Uh, well, I, I know it wasn't Tiger Williams. <laughs> <laughs> So it had to be me. Yeah, guess what? I, I, that's two for two. One last week and one this week. You made, you made the sheet. You made the score sheet squid two weeks in a row. Unbelievable. Yeah. That, that's Not bad. Good. Not bad. Yeah. Well, um, you notice I didn't mention any of the, no, no helpers on, were mentioned, uh, no apples mentioned in that little tight bit there. Do you remember, did you get an assist that night or just the three goals? If you can uh, well, if I did get an assist, it was probably on a rebound. <laughs> More than likely. <laughs> At least you're being honest. I'll give you that one. Well, listen, as you just alluded to about the books, we should take a moment to talk about a couple of personal, shameless, self-promotional moments about our books. Of course, mine's been out a month, and for those who aren't aware, I during the 2018-19 season, and look who's got I it. I got it. How about that? And I'm, uh, I'm going to start reading it tonight, and I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. So I've got uh, that Fall of the Leafs. And again, as I said, what I do is I spoke to fans right across the whole NHL network and uh, recorded their thoughts and, and, and stories and musings about the Toronto Maple Leafs and put it into a book forum. And I hope people enjoy the journey. November 17th, next Tuesday, Squid Your Book comes out, Catch 22, uh, with Scotty Morrison. 
Looking forward to reading that one. That should be a good one. What can fans expect in, in your memoir? This year? Uh, I think the biggest thing is basically the truth uh, about my whole life. Uh, there's no, and you know, I've been, people have talked to me about writing a book so many times and different people and this and that. And I said, well, first of all, the only guy I'm going to write it with is Scotty Morrison. And secondly, when I write a book, if I do, I said, it's going to be about my whole life, my hockey career, and it's not going to be bullshit. It's going to be the truth. Yep. And it's, you know, and, and I, you know, I've done a couple of things already, which won't come out until the 17th, some interviews and stuff. But um, I think everybody is pretty impressed with the fact that the honesty in the book and, you know, I, I share everything. I share my difficulties, my my ups and downs, my uh, my battle with alcohol. The, mm -hmm. Nothing is left out. And, uh, you know, that's the way I wanted it to be. And I wasn't going to do it any other way. Fantastic. And, I mean, I, it's, it's a great read, and I think it's a great inspiration for people to see that, um, you, you know, people that get put in certain levels of um, – uh, you know, of notoriety and sort of people, adulation by people, don't realize that they have everyday problems too, regardless of who they are. And, and the, 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 regardless of the circles you run in. And it's refreshing to see athletes like yourself come out and address those issues and not afraid to step up and maybe help somebody else not go down that same path. No, absolutely. And, and, and I've done that. I mean, there's many guys I played with ran into problems and I would go and visit them and try to help them out and, and even now I've got people reaching out to me that I don't even know. Well, Larry Landon, who runs the uh, PHPA, a uh, friend of his son was going through some uh, drug problems and alcohol problems and asked if I would go and meet with him. This was a 19 year old kid. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no problem. So I sat with him and his father for, I don't know how long. Uh, young man went to rehab the next day and he's back home now and he's doing extremely well. And uh, I'd like to think that perhaps some of the, the things that I said to him before he went to rehab helped him, you know, realize what he was going to go through and what he would have to do once he returned. And uh, he's doing very well. And it's been a few months now and uh, the kid is doing great. So, uh, you know, that, that makes me feel good that I, you know, had an opportunity to help someone and, and it's worked out so far. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, we, you know, we want to leave this on, on, a, on a funny note, but I'm going to get you to help me with my golf swing next year. And, you know, maybe that may be the offset for me so we can, we can work it out. No, but all kidding aside, that's fantastic news. Uh, we, you know, we're looking forward to seeing the books. I said our, our good friend Jim McKenney was on one of our earlier podcasts and talked about his struggles yeah. and how he helps people and he's dedicated his life to doing that. And he has turned lives around. And I, I, I think that, that that's just wonderful. So folks, look for that. It's available now. Uh, it's on sale already. Notice mine's not on sale. His is already. If you order it on Amazon, you get it on Amazon, you'll get it at Chapters or Indigo. Uh, guys, grab it. It's worth a look. Catch 22, Scotty Morrison, esteemed writer, terrific uh, guy who captures the story. Look for that next week. Squid, it looks like... Um, Nothing official, but they're, they're getting off a close to start update for the NHL, probably the new year. I guess, as we said last week with the NBA locking down December 22nd, 
the NHL is looking probably a few weeks or within. They're, they're kind of operating the same type of arenas, same arenas and all that kind of stuff. So it looks like they're going to probably go almost hand and foot. But our Canadian di division looks like we're going to get it. It's going to be reality. Yeah, well, I, I certainly hope so. And, uh, you know, the, the, the big thing is uh, the, the, the NBA, yeah, they're going to go on the 22nd of December. They want those Christmas uh, games. You know, uh, you know how they have three or four games on Christmas Day, which I still said today, I don't get it, but anyway, that's what they do. Uh, the NHL is sticking to their January 1st. Um, my guess is there probably will be a Canadian division uh, because of the border crossings and so on. Um, unless that rapid uh, testing thing that they were trying out in Calgary works out. But I'm excited because if there is a Canadian division, I think it's going to be fantastic. Yep, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I mean, they're talking about four hub cities and they're going to be moving around and they go for two weeks, a week off. So the, the planning stages are, there's a different, bunch of different scenarios being presented. We should hear something probably within a few days, a little more concrete. So uh, we're looking forward to that and all hockey fans are obviously. So anyway, we'll wait on that over the next few days. But our guest today is another one of your ex-teammates. Uh, this is a guy who burst onto the hockey scene after a very, and we're going to get into this obviously with him, in a very short sort of minor type career moving to the National Hockey League. I mean, this guy basically went from playing almost midget hockey to the NHL within a couple of years, was a fourth overall pick. Another guy beat you, by the way, by one, you know, so we'll have him on here anyway. Uh, in, the, in 1984, draft by our beloved Maple Leafs. I'm referring to Ali Frady, of course, but I, I, I got to say, describing him, Squid, uh, I, you, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong this, but I would use a baseball term as a five-tool star. This guy was big. He was strong. He was a powerful skater. He had a great exit zone pass. He had a cannon for a shot. I would have to say the one thing lacking, and again, we're going we're gonna to dig in Al's bag of tricks on this one and, and see what he has to say about it is, I would say the one thing he was lacking early in his career was a hockey IQ. And that only comes from the standpoint of it was an underdeveloped mind. Because let's face it, between 18 and 22, the difference is four years, five years, but it's eons as far as a professional athlete growing. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Mike. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll delve into that with Al because he's been very, very upfront whenever I've talked to him about, the, about that exact thing and that, he probably should have went back to junior hockey for two more years because he he always, he said to me many times, and, and I agree with him, he would have became the defenseman that he eventually was sooner than it took him to get there. Yeah. And, I, and I believe that to be true because, I mean, he only played a half a year of major junior hockey and then stepped into the NHL. I mean, you, you don't you, – you know, you, you want to put these young guys into positions where they can succeed, not fail. Yeah. And that was a, the saddest part about the 80s for us was the fact that we drafted some really good hockey players that were put in positions where they were going to fail, not where they were going to succeed. And that led to short careers for a lot of those guys. And, and obviously didn't help us as a team either. Well, the thing about it is that the sad part is that, that that team is probably being used as the sort of the prototype of what not to do and why players have to go back to junior. 
Yeah. And unfortunately for that, it hurt the team, set the team back, but teams moving forward today, you can see the players are almost over ready coming in. So my idea- yeah, was, I mean, there's times where you see guys, it depends on who they are and, and how good they are. And, um, you know, I mean, if you're talking about the top 10 picks in the draft, oh, they're likely going to all come in and they're going to make the roster and they're going to be good players. But, you know, once you get over that, then you see them putting them in the, in the American Hockey League for a couple of years. Or if they're European, they send them back to the, uh, their European team for a couple of years and then they're ready for the National Hockey League. And, I, you know, it, if they hadn't looked at it that way in, 19, in the 80s, then we could have became a much better hockey team. Yep, and it's unfortunate, but I mean, hopefully today we've learned our lesson in our team today. They don't do, they don't rush them as much. So well, anyway, they, we've got a couple of our thoughts. We've got lots to chew on today with Al. So why don't we go and hear what he has to say. Okay, Squid, as I said, our guest today, had a very short OHL career, along with representing his country at the 1984 Olympics, the USA, of course, I'm talking about, was the fourth overall pick by the, in the 1984 entry draft by the Toronto Maple Leafs. A solid ex-teammate of yours, Al Iafredi. Al, how you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, for listeners who aren't aware, you become a terrific traveling ambassador, a host, thrill seeker, joking, for the Toronto Maple Leafs on a lot of these boondoggle trips they had. I had the pleasure of running into you a few times myself when I followed the Leafs a couple of years ago. With all that not on the table for you, how are you occupying your days these days? No, I'm a day trader now. Are you a day trader? Yeah. Got any tips for us? Um, buy low, sell high. No, I just <laughs> I, was I was on Bay Street for 40 years and I never thought of that. You know what? Buy low, sell high. Let me write that one down. Spread, what do you think? Yeah, I don't, uh, I try to, I, I'm kind of more of a gambler in it where I don't really buy the shares. I buy, I buy puts and calls. I'm kind of betting on. Yeah, I got you. I'm betting on big moves. You know, the market's volatile right now because everyone's yep. worried about, uh, the economic recovery and things like that. And, you know, COVID and the second wave. And so there's big the moves. New president. And that's kind of how uh, I play it. I don't really ever hold any shares because I don't want to tie up a lot of money in the market. So I kind of gamble a little bit and buy options. And when they hit, it's good. And when they don't, you kind of limit your losses rather than, yep. you know, to simplify it rather than buying a thousand shares of something that's $40 and you're putting 40,000 out there, you know, you buy a, a future slash option contract where you think it's going to go to a certain, certain price and you can control the same amount of shares for one fortieth of the money. That's so, okay. so, my, my, yeah. so Mike would understand everything you just said, and I didn't understand one damn thing. <laughs> but anyway. Well, the other thing you can play, you can play long and short uh, ETFs also. So that's another way for you to play it. So you yeah, exactly. All those baskets. So they're good too. Well, before we get to that, you had to find some way to earn some money so you could do those type of things. So as another set, guys, we got the segues coming out of our ears today there, Squid. That's just like the third one so far. Um, you came from a real hockey culture area in Detroit area. Um, but how'd the game all start for you? Um, I got started by because of my neighbor. I, my parents were from Italy. They weren't, you know, sports people. 
You know, they came here during World War II with nothing. My dad served in the Korean War. Mm-hmm. You know, became a naturalized citizen through the proper channels. And um, my neighbor, who's uh, my neighbor, was my best buddy, Ronnie Baker, and his dad was a hockey player. And uh, he asked my mom if I wanted to play because my mom and his mom were friends and. My dad was like, yeah, sure, It'll, you know, keep him off the streets from getting in trouble. And I started playing and um, just loved it. And I played all the sports growing up, but my neighbor, my mom's best friend, Joan Baker, um, it's because of them I started playing. So you, you kind of, you know, went through the minor system and then all of a sudden you started, you went from almost, it almost looks like if, you, if somebody looks at your ball, you go from the Quebec Pee Wee tournament to playing for in Windsor with the, the Spitfire, the, the copyright team, to playing in Belleville to the Olympics, and then you're playing in the NHL. Like, this all seemed to happen. Like, and, like it was almost like a hop, skip, and jump. And the next thing, you know, you're wearing that hat that you got on your head. You're wearing it on front of your shirt. shirt. Yeah, I, uh, it was just weird how it happened. It happened really fast uh, once I turned 16. You know, I was an all-sports guy. I played all the sports because – my thing was I was fast, whether it was running, skating, swimming. For some reason, that was kind of a cars. <laughs> I liked fast. Uh, yeah, I, liked, I just liked going fast. So <laughs> it was, uh, I just, you know, that kind of opened the doors with all the sports, my speed. And it did with hockey as well because, you know, when I turned pro when I was 18, even in the Olympics, even in junior, I, was, I didn't really know the game. You know, because I was one of those guys that back then, you know, my coach was Real Turcotte, who's probably the a pioneer of hockey schools. Alfie Turcotte's dad, Real Turcotte, had this stick handling school, and I ended up playing for him when I was a first-year midget. But his whole thing was skills, and, you know, there was no systems practicing. It was like we had me, Pat LaFontaine, Kevin Hatcher, you know, a bunch of guys on our team that were, you know, destined to play in the NHL. And uh, it was all about skill development. So we didn't really worry about team defense. So I never really knew what being a defenseman was other than get the puck and try to go end to end. And if a guy's got a breakaway, catch him. You know, so it was uh, it was it was interesting learning the game as a pro when you're 18. Well, before that, I mean, if we got to the pros, when did you when did you did sink into you to take this game serious that you could do something with it? I mean, you, I mean, because everything was moving so fast and under your feet. Did you ever take time to sit back and say, "Geez, I actually think I could do this for a living"? I think once I got to, uh, I think I got once I got to an NHL training camp. You know, <laughs> I was kind of. I've always kind of been, been a, you know, looking through the world in rose-colored glasses and everything was fun in games. And then all of a sudden I got to the NHL and guys were like yelling and, and uh, asking, you know, you know, telling me, you got to learn how to do this, you got to learn how to do that. And I was just looking at them like, what? I didn't – it was uh, – it just happened so fast. And then I was like, wow, this is serious stuff here. You know, these guys are serious. <laughs> But up until then, it was just, you know, have fun and play hockey. And, you know, I don't, I don't even think when I was playing, when I was 
17, it was like this, I got to be a pro. I want to be a pro. I'm going to make lots of money. I, I, it wasn't any of it. I was just going out there having fun. Well, let's, let's go back to like 84 for your draft year. Okay, so the draft is coming up. Okay, you know what? You do know that. You know it's going to be your draft year. So what were your thoughts going into the draft? So let's take that approach. And where, where did you think you were going to end up? It was so primitive back then. Like there isn't social media. There wasn't, I don't know, we were kind of poor. So there wasn't a lot of long distance phone calls going on or anything like that. And then one day my mom was like, there's an agent that wants to come and talk to you. Because, you know, you're probably going to get drafted and, you know, it's the same guy who talked to you about when you got drafted to uh, Belleville, you know, and then after, after the fact, I made the Olympic team, so I didn't go to Belleville till after the Olympics, that rookie season of mine. But it was kind of funny because Ricky Curran, who was with Bill Waters, who were Bernada Sports, came to my house and he started talking about the draft and you know, possibly making like $60,000 a year and with a like, you know, a hundred or $200,000 signing bonus. And my dad looks over at me. He's like, he's like, holy shit. He's like, you must be pretty good. You never really, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't like there was this, you know, you got to be a pro. It was, my dad was just like, I don't care what you do. Just try to be the best at it. So it wasn't like this uh, little kid that was, nurtured to be a hockey player it was it wasn't anything like that it was just uh, have fun be a kid don't get in trouble or i'll beat your ass so al you and i have had this conversation before and, and uh you you have openly told me that you really feel that you should have went back to belleville for a couple more seasons that you would have became the defenseman that you did become sooner than you did. Uh, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I definitely wasn't ready to play in the NHL because I didn't. Uh, you know, I was learning a learning a system that you know was kind of foreign to me because even when I was on the Olympic team, it was a very European type system. The U.S. USA Hockey, Lou Vero, and just the personnel we had. It was a very offensive type, freewheeling you know, bigger ice surface system that I played for a whole year before I got drafted. But, you know, I definitely know that having gone back to junior, I think it would have, you know, facilitated me, you know, coming into my own earlier because I think pro sports is, you know, I don't feel like I'm off base, but it's more about, winning than developing and you know uh and i don't care what sport it is it's pro sports is about winning and uh there is developing going on and i think now it's even more so than ever because they have you know skills development coaches they have you know personnel coaches they have guys working with guys that are in the system and uh all that, all that going on now, and they're, they're way more attentive to developing a guy with that's going to be able to plug into whatever system and whatever sport you know that that team has, and they want to get the guys. So by the time they get to the NHL, they when this guy's too old or this guy's hurt, this guy gets plugged in, 
and he's already been developed. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of time for developing as we go, like I did, where it was like a lot of a lot of uh, baby steps until the guy gets to there. Well, there, there wasn't a whole lot of developing going on in our organization back then. Period. It was like you know, you come in. I mean, you're just one of many guys during that time that you know. You look at Jim Benning, Nyland, Boinstra. Uh, Russ you even go to Russ Courtnell. Todd Gill. So many guys that were put in positions. They weren't put in the right positions to succeed, I guess is probably the best way to put it. They were just like thrown in there because they were high drop picks. And a lot of them ended up with pretty short careers. Um, yeah, guys did. Some guys, you know, whether it be injury or not being in the right place at the right time, it probably did shorten their careers. And, you know, I definitely feel like I was the one of the lucky ones. And um, just looking back, it's like the the pressure to win is so, so huge back then in the 80s. I'm, I mean, I'm sure for the guys playing – you know, in the league now, especially in Montreal's, Toronto's, those types of cities. It, I don't know if it's we do it to ourselves, but the pressure seems like so much more magnified. So maybe you put that much more pressure on yourself, you know, trying to go back in time. It's it's just amazing how how things have changed where, you know, letting a guy develop is uh, – it's kind of what teams want to do. They want to let guys develop and, you know, develop in the minors or in junior or in college or whatever, wherever they may be on their climb of the ladder to the NHL. Time is, you know, they're, they're a lot more patient, I think. Well, you got to realize, too, I think uh, the other thing, and, and I agree with what you're saying about the development process, but the winning teams like a Montreal or an Edmonton or the Honors during their heyday, they could have development because they had competition for jobs. So these players are playing at the AHL level when they could have been playing in the NHL somewhere else. Whereas Toronto, during the 80s, was some rough times. I mean, how many coaches did they go through? Could have been you were there, like six or seven. You yeah. played four or five. Um, the team is not winning. You had a pretty, let's put it this way, uh, some bombastic owner, if you want to put it in a nice way, who's getting pressure himself to win. So you're right, rushing these players along was just absolutely atrocious. I mean, if you look at the players, the guy who preceded you was Russ Courtnell, and the guy who succeeded you in the draft was Wendell Clark. I mean, three pretty darn good players in three years in a row, and that team couldn't do anything. I mean, it is really, when you look back at that roster, it's just absolutely astounding how that team didn't do better. Um, yeah, I mean, once we got to the late 80s, you know, we – We'd squeak into the playoffs, went around here or there. Um, you know, that's that's not an ultimate goal. You know, that that's, uh, you know, whether it's you didn't have your sights high enough or, you know, whether, you know, you're getting lost in the shuffle of what's important, you know, making the playoffs or winning the Stanley Cup. And, you know, I think where we were because of how young our team was, you know, I kind of think the team could have did better, you know, like during the regular season. But uh, for what we had, I think, you know, as time went, we got a little better. But ultimately, like you said, when you're drafting 
when you're getting the top five picks for five, six, seven years in a row, you know, you need to see results quicker than that. And, you know, obviously they didn't and it became an issue. And then all those guys go on, you know, obviously Wendell spent the majority of his career in Toronto because Wendell is Wendell, but the rest of us kind of went on to different places and, you know, did better. That brings me exactly to what we're talking about is you got an owner who wouldn't pay what he want, what a good general manager would want to be a general manager and what a good coach would want. And therefore mistakes were made. And then, like you said, guys move on. You went on and had a, a great career. And uh, I, I don't know. I was asking, uh, we were talking earlier, were you ever uh, a finalist for the Norse? Yeah, I think I was once. Yeah, okay, in Washington, yeah. right? Um, I don't know what a finalist was, but I was like, I don't know. I got votes or whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, but I mean, I, I was a... Uh, second team all-star where they pick them at the end of the year. And yeah. stuff. I think it was that year. I think it might've been 92. You had 25 goals that year and then 41 assists. So you had a pretty good year. Let's go back to arriving in Toronto. You're an 18 year old kid coming into your first camp. Just kind of take us through all of that. And then just going through the league the first time and, and, and just everything you were kind of experiencing. Oh, it was just, you know, obviously I thought I had worked hard. You know, and then when I got to the NHL, it was because, geez, I, I don't know if Squid remembers our first training camp, but literally we were on the ice for six hours a day, man. Like the first week to 10 days, we'd have a morning skate, an afternoon skate, I think a night skate. It was, it was just unbelievable. And it was like, um, I thought I was in shape and I thought I had worked hard to get to where I was, but then I realized, okay, this is a whole nother level of working hard and commitment and, you know, understanding the game, learning the game. And then there was the whole aspect of how much more physical the game was, um, especially being in that division we were in, um, realizing that that was kind of a precursor to what was coming. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a lot to, a lot to, comprehend and you know um internalize and it was hard being 18 it was like i'm fast as hell man i don't need to worry about anything i just get the puck and go and then all of a sudden there's dudes that are 28 years old that are just as fast as you so once they get two steps on you you can't catch them and uh that was the difference trying to learn that because in my mind i was like i can catch anyone so if i make a little mistake it's no big deal and then all of a sudden you know, Gretzky's passing it to Curry. Curry's passing it to Anderson. Anderson's passing it back to Coffee, and you're skating around like a madman, doing nothing, right? And uh, it was it was uh, it was a lot of learning going on. So, did any of the veterans take you under their wing? Like anybody come? How did 22 treat you when he first met you? Uh, it was great. Um, all the veterans there were, you know, happy happy guys, fun guys. Um, very accommodating to all of us, all of us young guys. Everyone was accommodating. Um, it was, uh, but you're kind of in awe because 
you know, six months earlier, you're watching all these guys on TV. And like I said, and it might be because I look at the world in rose-colored glasses, but I had no idea I'd be playing in the NHL, you know, when I was playing junior in March and April after the Olympics in Belleville for the playoffs. I had no idea or, you know, I don't think I was ever thinking about playing in the NHL when I was playing junior because I was kind of worried about what I had to do for the time I was, you know, the time frame I was in at that moment in time. Did you play football, uh, Al? Yeah, it was, I played football, baseball, soccer, um, ran track, but uh, – would have been a, a heck of a running back. I, I was tell a you that. I was a I was a tight end and a defensive end. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, you would have been good at that too. <laughs> well, now a couple of your early coaches were Dan Maloney and John Brophy. Okay, a couple of you couldn't get more sort of uh, polarizing guys, I guess you could say, from sort of that tough standard. How did you get along with those guys, or what kind of message were they always trying to send you? They must have been a little hard on you. It was kind of the good cop, bad cop, you know. Dan, I think Dan kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word coddled, but I think he he kind of took me under his wing, and Brof was kind of like, you know, I'm going to crack the whip on this guy because I think he can be great. But when you're 18 and there's some guy that every day is on you, I think when you're 18, it's kind of hard to understand that they just want you to be the best you can be. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dan, I think, uh, kind of shielded me from it getting too crazy. And, uh, you know, Brof, in his own way, wanted to inspire me to, you know, do better than I was doing. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of, it was, uh, it was hard to, it was hard to mentally understand everything that was going on because like I said I was 18 and I came out of junior and played in the Olympics quit high school so I was like man this is the best this is the best life in the world and then all of a sudden when you're in the NHL and you lose two games in a row and you're a defenseman the team's giving up more than four goals and you're on the ice for two goals a game things things get compressed and pretty intense quickly <laughs> What was your impression, Squid, when you saw this kid for the first time? Or after uh, times? Big, strong, fast, uh, had a howitzer for a shot. And, uh, you know, but again, I, you know, I don't think he had the, the proper mentorship, I guess, from the coaching staff. The, the, I mean, as the players, like, you know, we tried to help him and, and the other young guys as much as possible. And by telling, trying to tell them less as opposed to more. In other words, like, keep it simple, stupid is, is basically the words we use. Uh, but, you know, all of a sudden you got Brof yelling at them. You got Dan kind of getting mad and because we lost two in a row, like you said. And, uh, I mean... We played in Winnipeg, lost 10 nothing. flew back the next day, got home at 2.30 in the afternoon, had to go right to the gardens, watch the entire film, and Dan Maloney was our coach. And then, then we went on the ice for an hour and a half and skated. 
with no pucks. So that was what these young guys had to go through. And, and, you know, to me, it was, it took away from, I think what they could have been because I think they got down a little bit because of what was going on. In my opinion, anyway, I don't know what, what Al would think about that, but I mean, the game, yes, you want to win and it is serious because you're getting paid to do it, but you got to have fun. And there's time to have fun. There's time not to have fun, but you got to enjoy playing the game. And I don't think our coaches brought that joy to us every day. Well, I would suggest probably, well, you can answer that, Al, but I would suggest also, again, the coaches are looking over the shoulder, and that guy's sitting in a little box in the corner with his winger. And, you know, it, you know, you may not have a job, but if you don't show that you're, if you, if you went on the ice smiling when the team is losing or you try to loosen things up, he's just crazy enough to turn around, fireman, bring in a guy up the street to run the team. So, I mean, all this, the, the clown-like atmosphere that was going on and the circus atmosphere, that didn't help the situation, I'm sure now. I mean, as an 18-year-old kid, and all you young guys, it had to be pretty tough for you. So, I mean, uh, keeping all that stuff in mind, was there a moment in time or defining moment is the word I always like to use with players is where you thought you finally made it and you could actually step back and take a bit of a breath and say, geez, after all of this run I've had the last couple of years, I'm actually can settle in and just play hockey? Yeah, I'd have to say it was in my second year. That's kind of where everything got figured out. You know, I had a great training camp. And then I shattered my nose and cheekbone. I don't know, like the middle of training camp. And uh, they had to do surgery, so I didn't skate for like about a month. And uh, I, I got smoked in a fight. And uh, that kind of like woke me up and that, okay, you know, this is more about, this is, this hockey is, uh, this is serious. This is like serious. I've got to get tougher. I got to get stronger. I got to work harder, you know, cause I went from, you know, all of that and, uh, came to camp a little out of shape. Although I was having a, you know, once I did get into shape, I was having a good camp and, uh, well, even when you weren't in shape, you were still the fastest guy. <laughs> anyway, so that didn't really matter. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was all those things called, like it came to a, a, a head where, you know, I didn't come into camp in great shape. Came up, we, you know, came off of a really bad year where we had the first pick overall. So we were the worst team in the league. Yeah. Um, suffered a major injury. And then, you know, it kind of woke me up that this is, uh, it's not la-la land. This is like real life. And, uh, you know, you're only as good as your last uh, play. Well, now, speaking of which, they talk about the coach. Now, Squid, you touched on that the, the coaches maybe not having some of them, but you being a bunch of young guys, all in your 20, 18, 20, 21, you guys had some fun. Now, you guys must have. Thank God there wasn't social media then. Phones <laughs> <laughs> with cameras on them. Well, I was going to say, you must have driven those coaches nuts with some of the index. Now, there's a story I think you've told us in the past. I think was it you and Reggett, you were yeah. late or late for practice or close, close to being late for practice because you were playing cops or something on the way to practice or giving tickets out or something? Oh, pulling people over. So, how did that all tell us that story? Pull them over. 
Where are you from? You just, like, over, you just pull over into QEW and just start pulling cars over? We had like a little fake uh, siren, like streets of San Francisco. <laughs> what are you guys doing? People would be like, going to work. We're like, where do you work? They'd tell us where they work, and we'd be like, all right, carry on. And then we'd let them go and pull someone else over. <laughs> it's kind of stupid, right? But <laughs> I guess when you're 19, it's funny. So, uh, but didn't somebody get you at the rink? They, they found out you were doing this and said, well, because somebody recognized you guys? Uh, I think Floyd Smith was waiting for us at the, uh, <laughs> at the door on Church Street there where we walked in. Like, what is wrong with you guys in disbelief that we were like that much, that idiotic? That's great. Well, so now... <laughs> You gotta, you gotta love that. Like, like, love the stories like that when you guys are doing those type of things. So, I mean, Squid, you're sitting in the room and you hear this kind of stuff that these kids are pulling out. Like, what's going through your mind? Like, you're just saying, I did the same thing, so I can't be throwing any stones. Uh, you know what? I, I probably did stupider stuff than they did. So, I'm not gonna judge what they did because I probably did stuff that was a, a little stupider than them, but. But you know what, I, I, I thought, you know what, they're having fun, you know? And like I said, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're probably not gonna be successful at it. So, you know what, if they wanna have a little fun at someone else's expense and, and enjoy life and enjoy what you're doing for a living, then, you know, let them do it. And, uh, you know, I think if there was more of that in, in the 80s, in, in our dressing room and, and our organization, I think we would have been a little bit more successful. Now, now, Al, just along those lines, I mean, again, you guys were all young guys. You guys, and, you know, it's a young city. It's a big city, the Maple Leafs, and it doesn't matter what genre you are from. The Maple Leafs are always sort of held in a higher uh, you know, level than anybody else in any other sport in, in Toronto, and that's still to this day. You guys getting recognized around the city, like, did, did this start to – hinder stuff you guys were doing or did you just run into this or you went like people seeing you all the time and it would just get frustrating with you guys like just trying to enjoy a night out um i really i really don't think i really cared about that to be honest with you because i try to i try i still try to um explain to people here because you know detroit's the self-proclaimed hockey town yeah hockey town I try to explain to all my friends that are Wings fans that I grew up with or just football fans or any kind of fan of any sport. I'm like, you guys have no idea what being a pro hockey player in Canada is like. I'm like, you can take the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball times 10, and that's like being a pro hockey player in Toronto. And they're like, no way. I'm like, yeah, wait, you guys have no idea. It's there's really no way to bottle it and compare it because it's it's just so much over the top than any hockey that goes on in, in the U.S. That, you know, and luckily I played in Boston, which, you know, would rival Detroit or Chicago or New York, you know, teams like that for how popular and how great the fans are. Um, but it's in Canada, it's, it's like you just multiply it, you know, not exponentially, but times 10 or 20. And um, I kind of liked it, believe it or not, like the 
notoriety and how, um, I don't want to use the word adored, but how in touch the fans were with their hockey teams in Canada is amazing. And it's like, it's one of the best, it's one of the greatest things I got to experience. And I feel like every guy who plays in the NHL should get to play in a Canadian city. Now take that one step further when you went on the road and you'd see those Leaf fans in the road, that that, that, that like you come again, you come from a hockey net area yourself, like did that just take it to another level for you when you look around and see those blue and white sweaters in the crowd on the road? Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually like a really fun time because it was like a, it was a fun experience because we had an exhibition game my rookie year in Edmonton and we actually won. They didn't have, obviously, their Stanley Cup lineup in there, but they had a few of the guys. But to see all the Leaf fans that were in Edmonton, it was like, wow, this is amazing. It was so cool. And uh, that was like, you know, that was part of being a pro athlete that I had never, you know, like I said, I didn't, I mean, I loved playing hockey and I wanted to be a pro hockey player, but it didn't define me or consume my life. It was, I'd have thoughts of it and stuff like that, but it wasn't like, you know, my dad making me shoot or run or do, it was, it was just work hard coaches. I had good coaches growing up teaching skills and all that, but it wasn't something that, you know, was this uh, all day, every day, nonstop thing, you know, it was, uh, but seeing those fans and it was like, wow, this is, it was like open. It was like a whole eye-opening experience of how great it is being a pro athlete, especially as a hockey player in Toronto. Well, then, so 1991. I mean, after all of that, and experiencing that for a few years, and you just wanted to play the game, you request a trade just to move out, like almost to get out from under this fishbowl experience. I mean, Wendell Clark has said said to us he was on the podcast last week. He suggested that. One of the good things about Toronto is the players coming in to get traded here have no idea. It's just what you described, Al, about what you're walking into as a player in a city like this. It's all consumed by the fan. It's almost better to start your career in Toronto and go somewhere else so that it gives you a little bit of something to step down from. Take us through moving to Washington and, and just what sort of brought all that about. Um, you know, Toronto, I was coming off of a um, brutal knee injury. I had heard it in the, I don't know, there was like two games left in the season. We, you know, that was one of our, that was the year I think, I think we still have the record for uh, most goals for, for a Leaf team. I think that team, the 90 team has that record. And uh, we were like fire wagon hockey. We had a running gun team. I think we ended the year with 96 points or four points, something like that. But, uh, you know, we were going to play St. Louis in the first round and there was two games left, three games maybe. I just got caught up getting hit. And while I was getting hit, another guy got hit and came on my one leg and I folded over on it and shredded my ACL, MCL, medial meniscus dislocated the head of my fit. It was a bad injury. And uh, the next year I was coming back from that and just never hit strike because the year before I was an all-star, the year that I got hurt. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like my second or third all-star game. And then uh, I didn't get back to that level. And then 
I just started feeling good and uh, coaching changed. Maybe a couple coaches that year. I'm not sure, but uh, there might have been a coach firing, then an interim coach, then a hiring of a coach, and then uh, it was just time to. It was time to just move on, and you know, I just told, I told, uh, you know, Floyd and Ricky, and we had a meeting, and it was like, man, it's just best for me to move on. And well, uh, Washington. Yeah, and then I ended up in Washington, and uh, you know, I went to a team that it was kind of it was interesting because I went to a team that, um, you know, the year or two before you know, lost in the semis and uh, had a decent team. And um, they were going through some changes because they had just lost Scott Stevens and, you know, a bunch of their key guys. And, uh, you know, it was an opportunity. And I, and I looked at it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, get better, help the team because they were kind of in a division that – was really tight when it came to the playoffs and uh you know they were fighting for their lives in January and uh you know I went there and progressively got better and uh but just it was a total shock from you know going to a rink where there's reporters everywhere they had like one or one guy that covered the team so like you'd go to the rink and there'd be like nobody in the stands you know and then it was weird. It was weird um, playing for a team that had kind of a practice rink that they usually skated out of. There was, you know, like this little municipal rink over in Virginia. And the only time you we were really at the big rink was for a game. Mm -hmm. And uh, this very transient town where there's huge cap fans now. There was great cap fans then, but it was kind of in its infancy when I got there. It was kind of within its first 10 or 15 years of existence. And uh, the fan base is nothing like the fan base. They have unbelievable fans now. But uh, it was Redskin Town, man. They won like three out of four Super Bowls yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the time I was there. And, you know, no one knew who you were. And it's a transient place where a lot of people that live there aren't from there you know think, um, Al, do you think that helped you going to washington and being in a <clears throat> different environment uh become a the, the player that you did and being an all-star and everything else uh, i think it i think it uh i think it did looking back um at the time i was i didn't feel relieved or, or anything like that but i think it was just uh it was just, it was, there was, it seemed to be a little more of a patient, it was like a, it seemed to be, there seemed to be a lot more patience, you know, not, you know, nothing was the end of the world and winning four games in a row was like, you know, this doesn't mean you're going to win the Stanley Cup. Where in Toronto, it seemed like if you lost three games in a row, everyone's going to the minors. Chrysler plant, here I come. <laughs> My career is over. <laughs> Just like Johnny and Slapshot. Um, or if you won five games, order the rings. It was kind of the opposite of that because, you know, I'm going to a team that's used to winning 50 plus games a year, 50 games a year, right? 
Well, so, I mean, it's funny because, you know, we had Dan Dow and Tommy Ferguson a time, and they both play original six teams, came from original six teams to Toronto. You went the other way, and you played for the original six team. One of the concerns they had about coming into Toronto, and that's funny that you say that, is the fact that they thought that losing was almost not accepted, but it wasn't frowned upon the same way it was in the two organizations they came from, which were winning at the time, and the Leafs weren't. You went the other way. So maybe, and Rick, you can even jump in on this too, because you know you experienced it yourself going to Chicago. So just talk about that, about the kind of the difference about what, well, you just touched on it with Toronto when, when things were going probably a little bit better and more expectations, but that level of winning in Boston, even like those original six teams just seemed to be off the charts to anybody ever talked to. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, their points are, you know, hugely valid. It's like, it's, uh, they're coming from a team that, you know, it's kind of like a, you got to put it in perspective. They're coming from a team and they were younger guys when they got traded, you know, they were probably in their early to mid twenties. And, uh, it's, it's, you can get mad about losing, but you also got to, you know, I learned that you got to realize is your team better than that team? And, you know, I'm not going to say we, uh, didn't underachieve my earlier years in Toronto. Um, we may have to, you know, an extent, but when you're on a team that is built and has been built and has won because they are a good team, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's kind of hard to say that the other team that they got traded to. So I, I beg to differ with them a little bit that, the accepting of losing was a culture. Cause I don't really believe that. I just, mm-hmm. I don't believe it because, you know, I look in the mirror, I look at the team. I had a chance to win a Stanley cup on, which would, which would be Washington or Boston, but Washington, because we had Pittsburgh down three games to one the year they won their first cup and we had a really good team and they had a really good team. And I look back and I'm like, our team was great, but their team was phenomenal. So it wasn't a joke that we blew a 3-1 lead. It was like we played a team with Mario Lemieux, Tomas Stanstrom, Brian Trache, Yaromir Yager, Paul Coffey, Larry Murphy, um, Joey Mullen. It's just Rick Tockett. It goes on and on and on. It's like there's like 10 Hall of Famers on the team. So did we in Washington accept losing or did they maybe have a little better team? And you know, whether it was they were stronger in this category or that category or that category, doesn't matter. It comes down to, as a team, they were built better for winning at that point in time. And um, I don't think I accepted losing. I don't think anyone accepts it, although it might be hard to get out of that. Um, it might be hard to get out of it at times on certain teams. I don't really think pro athletes are accepting it at any point. And if it is a guy who does accept it, he's not in the league in a year or two. Scrape, your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I, I would have to agree with that. I mean, uh, from a standpoint of, say, in Toronto in the 80s, I mean, you know, 
I don't think any of the players that, that I played with accepted losing. I think they're referring to management more than the players, not the players. It was more management that they well, were. And I, I'm not sure management really accepted losing. It's just that they didn't have the capacity to do what they needed to do to put together something that could win. I think that was what they're referring to. Yes. You know, mistakes were made. And of course, you had an owner who wouldn't spend money to bring in the right people. Uh, we were probably all paid less than what we were supposed to get paid at that time. And, uh, you know, that, that's just the way I look at it. I, I don't think there's a pro athlete that, that would accept losing at, at any point in their career. Well, I just, I, I, I think that, guy, I, that sort of came out wrong because I was, what I was referring to is the fact that they, you know, they, where they were coming with, like, with Harry Sinden and maybe the Montreal management, if a team lost one or two games in a row, they just thought, like, as Al mentioned, with Toronto, you're like, you're ready to shut the team down and, and get rid of them. Where they went into Toronto, they didn't seem to have that same attitude. You know, it was a little, little different. But again, a lot of it probably points to the owner and what was going on in those days where he was hiring him for football. He made you the captain when you did, you know, he didn't even ask for it or look for it or didn't even talk about it. So all these type of things are going on. And on that subject, how was your relationship with Uncle Hal, uh, Al? Um, just to like, can I just interject and say yeah. one last thing? And I think yeah, Squid sure. was, I'm pretty sure Squid was definitely at the golf outing. Remember when, uh, remember when Shanahan spoke? And yeah. this kind of goes back to the guys, you know, accepting losing. Um, mm -hmm. Remember when Shanahan spoke at that golf outing and was talking about um, the, the young team and all that stuff. And he was just talking in general because they do a thing where they have the Leafs and Legends golf outing. And he was talking and he was talking about realizing how hard it is to win a championship. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can realize it. I think you just have to do it. And no one can understand it unless they've done it. And I think that kind of is more of what it is. Uh, other uh, rather than young guys super talented accepting losing I think it was more of a scenario where it was a lot of young guys who really didn't understand what it took to win consistently and at 18 and 19 were oh, 10 of our guys were that age or eight guys were that age 18 19 or 20 I think it's pretty understandable that we didn't have the mental capacity to understand what you have to do on a daily basis to win. And then as you get older, you figure that out and realize it. And look at Steve Eiserman. He did it when he was, what did he win? He won the Stanley cup, like in his 13th season or 14th yep. season. He changed his game 14 years into his career to realize he and realized he had to, and it took, you know, obviously a coach and some other players from other teams that have had done it to help him realize it. And it's kind of a – that debate will go on forever, right, on whether guys accept losing or don't understand what it takes to win and if they ever will understand it. But, you know, to answer your question with Harold, he uh, – um, I think he liked me. Because, <laughs> like – after practice, he'd be like, he would tell Brophy to get me down on the line and make me skate around the rink as fast as I could. 
<laughs> like, I want to see you skate fast. Skate as fast as you can around the rink. So I'd skate around the, as fast as I can around the rink. Then he'd be like, do that thing where you, you uh, take the puck and wrist it from one goal line all the way over the net into the, into the net of, at the other end of the rink. <laughs> that's Uncle Hal. That, that, that sounds like Uncle Hal. Um, I think that, uh, well, I mean, just, I mean, just along those lines, I mean, it gets, you're, you're, you know, you're not wrong and all of that, but I think management, it starts at the top winning and it is a culture and it comes back to the discussion we had before about being rushed to the league too soon, because we said with you, you know, we could classify you as a five-tool player coming into the National Hockey League as an 18-year-old, but your hockey IQ was lacking because you're an 18-year-old competing against guys who are in their 20s and older. And the difference in that age group and that maturing and learning the game is, is eons compared to just like it, it, people don't understand that, how difficult it is. And you touched on it earlier, like all the things that faced you were all the things you weren't prepared for because before, let's face it, if you got in trouble with the puck, you'd just get your way out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, whether that's management's fault or my fault. Um, You're not going to send yourself down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I think, I don't know. I, I don't know. There might have been a decision to think that, you know, I'd be better off developing there, which, you know, might not have been the case because – I think it would have been easier playing junior than playing in the NHL at the at the hockey IQ level I was at when it was time for me to turn pro. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you weren't, it you weren't alone, by the way. There was a few other guys that could have gone with you on that team. <laughs> I've always yeah. believed, Al, that um, okay. like I've because I've heard it so many times that you know when I suggested that perhaps so-and-so or whatever should, should have went back to junior for another year or, or two years or whatever. And, and then I hear, well, yeah, but he's too good for junior hockey. And I, and I always, my reply to that is always, well, there's nothing wrong with being the best player in the country because all that's going to do is make you feel better about your game and about how, what you're doing. And then once you do get to the next level, I think that's going to, uh, you're going to be a lot more positive about the way you're playing. And I, I truly believe that, that you need to feel comfortable being the best. And then once you get to the next level, yes, it's not going to happen right away, but it's going to make it easier. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, I don't think guys that are the best in the world right now were the best. Pretty most of them were at some point in time the best player on their team and the best at every level they played at. You know, the majority of them were. There's the odd guy that, you know, is a late bloomer and all of a sudden does it at the end. But most guys were standouts. Well, you know, you know the thing is, that's, see, that's the part we've discussed on the show many times in the past also, is that most of the guys that make the National Hockey League, they come up through the ranks from the time they're six or seven, they're the best player in their team, they've got the puck all the time, the team's built around them, everybody's kissed their butt, their parents' butts, all the way up right to the National Hockey League, they walk into training camp that first day, they look around the room, and there's 20 guys who've done exactly the same thing they have for the last 10 years to get there. And the guys who can separate themselves from the pack are the guys that are successful. And that's where you really can make your mark. And that's where, that's where the maturing comes in as a player, where you're able to do that. And some can and some can't. 
And you mentioned Steve Eisenman, took him 14 years. Well, he used to score 60 goals a year. The year they won the Stanley Cup, he scored 23. Ovechkin, when they won the Stanley Cup in Washington, look at him. He was the, the typical selfish goal scorer. He'd stay in the ice for two, three minutes to score goals. And he gave all that up and became an ultimate team player and put the team first and the game first. And they won the Stanley Cup. And that's what it takes to win. Yeah. And that's what happens. So I'll, uh, you know, on the Leaf topic, um, they made a lot of moves this summer. Uh, yeah. Do you think they did enough? Uh, you know, you bring in a Joe Thornton and a Wayne Simmons, and because we had Wendell on, and I, I agree with what Wendell said, but I want to hear your take on, on the moves they made and, and is it enough? I think it's... I think it's a work in progress. How do you like that politically correct answer? <laughs> well, I agree with Wendell, what he had to say, so uh, 100%, is that these guys are going to come in and they're going to bring some leadership. They're going to be able to guide these guys in the room. But they're not the guys that are going to get it done on the ice. I mean, Joe Thornton, Simmons, they're getting to a point where you know, they're not going to go out and win games on their own for you. This young core that the Leafs have, which is very, very good, and we're talking about their top six forwards, their top two or three defensemen, and they are very good. It's, it's now time for them to take control of this situation and get this team over that hump. I agree. I mean, they have older guys. These younger guys... Um, the well, they're not the, young anymore. That's the thing. Yeah, but in the league four or five years now, yeah, they're still young technically. But I mean, they've been four years in the league, five some of them, and it's time for them to take hold of this thing and and take it to the next level. I, I that's my belief anyway. I Wendell said that. I totally one hundred percent agree with him. The other guys are going to help out with their experience. But they're not going to be the guys that are going to get it done on the ice. They can't be um, your best players, that's for sure. Yeah, I think you know. I agree that uh, I agree that um, these guys are going to help them progress for sure. I totally agree with that, and I feel like the guys, you know, that we have, are going to continually get better because I think. They're understanding more and more. They're understanding the game more and more and more. I think – I don't think you ever stop learning. And uh, I believe that uh, they're going to get better. Even even though they're they're great players now, they're going to continually – they're going to continually get better. And uh, I don't know. I, I like the future of the Leafs. I really do. But, I mean, look at, look at Tampa Bay. This is a team that uh, – you know, for three of the last four years, they've been knocking on the door, right? Okay, so let's bring, let's go back to Steve Eisenman, what you mentioned about him. And you got this young core elite players that are unbelievable. Do they have to realize that maybe they have to play, a, some of them have to play a little bit different for this team to win? Or can they continue to play the way they're playing, get, you know, Every every night and, and in the playoffs, and win a Stanley Cup, or do they have to change some things? 
Um, I think they're I think they're just going to continually get better. They're going to become more well-rounded players. Um, they're going to learn more tricks in their own end. They're going to they're going to learn how to be a five-man unit in their in their zone. Um, they're going to learn, you know, the sense of urgency of every single play. Um, I think those are all. You know, a lot of them are buzzwords and things you talk about in the locker room with the coaches, you know, in every single pregame of every career of every game of your career. But executing it where it becomes automatic, it takes time. It doesn't, you know, you're young and you're still learning. And, you know, I think they're, I think they're, they're, uh, still manifesting into the players they're going to become. They're not the finished product yet. And um, I think, I think as they, as they progress and become more well-rounded players, the team is just going to get better. Well, and the well-rounded player means that they got to have the commitment to defense the same way they do to offense, because you can't teach offense. You can teach defense. And the sooner they learn that, and they are starting to learn that, that's when you'll see the results will come because that make, takes a job while you're a defenseman. So you know exactly what that does for the defense and all the signings of the defenseman they made in the off season won't mean anything if the forwards aren't going to commit in their own end to help these guys. So to your guy's point, and again, the Eisenman example of what he had to do to win. I think if they take that and they look what Tampa did this year and they start doing that, you're right. This will manifest into where they want to be hopefully in the next couple of years. So We'll sit back and watch with lots of interest here. Now, Al, we just got you for a few more minutes here, but now a couple of things here. Who was the funniest guy you ever played with? And maybe uh, one of the best pranksters. They're, they're, they're always in the NHL. There's always those guys you run across. Prankster was probably Dale Hunter. Give us um, an example of one of his... Good ones. Now, Jr. we got to tell you, Jeremy Ronick was on a couple weeks ago, and he, he faked his own death to scare a couple teammates one time. So, you know, that's, that was a pretty tough one to talk. Yeah, I don't have anything that good. I just have – I just have – I just have when I had a brand-new truck that I bought, and uh, Dale Hunter thought it was going to be funny to get the keys from the trainer and perpetrate – because Jimmy Wiseman, who was our off-ice official, was in on it that my truck got stolen, and I was freaking out. And Dale was, like, stoic. He, I never had any idea that – he's like, oh, man, I can't believe this. He was, like, the guy, like, consoling me and, you know, rough, tough Dale Hunter being, like, a big brother, you know, because he was the guy. He was the guy that was uh, – that did the whole crime. So it was, uh, it was pretty funny. Um, well, I, I think the best pranksters are the ones that you, you don't catch. Those are the guys that are the best prank, pranksters. Yeah. So he played that perfectly. I didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't catch him. I was like getting ready to start crying, and they were like, fuck look at this guy. He's going to cry. <laughs> better fucking tell him. <laughs> oh, boy. So I, I got to yeah. ask you, we just did a video thing for uh, your – involved or well, maybe not this year well obviously none of us are really doing uh, it virtually but the easter seals and you and i and there's a bunch of us that are heavily involved with them we did a video and uh before we were all on the zoom call 
And there was Al in the convertible, burning the tires, saying, okay, I'm heading to the border. <laughs> it was yeah, a funny, was... one of the funniest videos I ever saw, because obviously we're all sitting there going, we can't get across the border. <laughs> so, well, but tell us about that whole, that whole thing. Now, there's... Well, just based on that squid, you know what? This gives us a perfect leading for this one, Al. Uh, you know, now there's a Boston writer who gave you the name affectionately, called you the planet. Now, is this you just screwing with these guys all the time? Haven't been like that. I wonder if it's the same guy who gave uh, Red Sox uh, pitcher Bill Lee the name Spaceman. But anyway, he called you Planet. And obviously, after a story like this, like talk about some of your ways to deal with some of these guys and prank them a little bit or just joke with them a little bit. No, that was uh, that was that was uh, Brian Sutter. He, I hurt my knee again, again. But I had a bad knee injury in Boston, and yeah. uh, the doctor was like, "I went to Birmingham, Alabama, Doctor Clancy. You know, he did the surgery, and after the surgery, he's like, man, you're probably, you know.'" I don't know if you're ever going to play again. You have like zero articular cartilage left on the end of your femur, which is kind of the area where your kneecap rides. So it's yeah. like, it's down to the nerve. He's like, we can graft some stuff in there and do some a Stedman pick it's called and try to get some uh, bleeding. So it covers the nerves, but it's a bad injury, you know? And uh, he's like, you can't skate or play for six months. So I had the surgery like in May or June and training camp rolls around. I'm not going to be going to training camp because I'm not supposed to skate. So like the press was all over Brian. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Because in Boston, all the guys skate together for weeks before training camp. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Brian's like, oh, that fucking guy. I don't know. He's on his own planet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so from that moment on, all the Boston people were the planet. They called me the planet. It was a Brian. Did you ever get the L Hunter back for a prank? For him getting you? No, because he practiced like he played, so I didn't want to have to deal with any of that. <laughs> God bless him. I love him. Yeah, well, that's a good. Okay, well, listen, Allah, we want to uh, thank you. I got anything else uh, before we let Al go, Squid? Uh, no, uh, just, you know what, I love the guy. Uh, we do a lot of things together, a lot of uh, appearances and trips with uh, these corporate partners and all that, and we have a blast together. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we haven't seen each other personally for quite some time because of the border closing, and hopefully yep. that'll be rectified, you know, within the next four or five months or so. And we can get back to doing what we love doing, right, Al? Absolutely, yeah. I can't wait to see, you know, I love Canada. I love the people, humble, you know, I love it. I miss it. And uh, eventually I'm going to have to go over there and just stay for two weeks because I miss it so much. <laughs> right? And then I can come back. But, you know, it's uh, hopefully the border gets open in the next year or something like that. But I do miss – like uh, Rick said, doing all these, uh, having the awesome opportunity because I was a Maple Leaf and because I was a pro hockey player to help uh, all these different charities. I sure do miss it. 
No, that's fine. Well, the, the charity certainly appreciated, and you guys do wonderful work. And Al, uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you soon in the alumni box uh, when the games are back on. Hopefully, if we ever get to see that again. But uh, again, thanks, and uh, all the best to you moving forward. And we'll see you soon. All right, thank you, guys. Well, Ricky, another uh, good guest and uh, quite a character. Al is, you know, I, I you, you got to listen. You know, you know his story. You listen to it. You and I have talked about him. I got to sit back and think. And, and this is not a knock in him, but just the fact this poor guy, he was brought in the league too soon. But just imagine if he had been brought along properly, guided properly, and he had maybe that little more drive to push himself, how good, like it would be, he would, be, would have been scary good. Well, yeah, I, I think, Mike, what I was trying to get at, I guess, is, is probably, if he had gone back to junior for another year or two, probably, I think he would have had more of that drive, you know, because that would have, I mean, junior hockey is pretty good yep. and in Canada and uh, major junior. And it brings out the best in you. It, it makes you strive to be the best. And that just sets you up for the NHL. And I think had he done that, or I shouldn't say had he done that, had they done the right thing and sent him back there, then I think he would have arrived with a much better or different, di not better, but different attitude towards what it was going to take to be a good NHL player. No, I, and, I, I agree. Like he said to me, uh, he would have been a, a much better player earlier in his career than he than he ended up being. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And, and you can see it. And it just, look at the, the tools he's had. Can you imagine him in that leap defense today with the ability oh, he has? I mean... You put him in the league today with the way he could skate, and, uh, say, at, the, at a young age, and how big he was, how strong he was. I mean, he, he, he'd be a Norris candidate on a yearly basis. Just be, yeah, it is. It's, 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 but again, those were the learning curves and the part of the, I guess, problem and the dilemma the Leaf fans and poor teams, which you can see what they go through and why they don't win. And you hear stories like this, and it's not his fault, but just definitely the way these teams were managed, and it all starts, you know. It was one person's fault. Yep. And that is the guy at the top. Absolutely. That was Mr. Ballard. And, uh, I mean, you can't blame anybody else because he did all the hiring. I mean, those guys did the scouting and picked good players and everything else, but they made bad decisions because I don't think they were qualified enough to do the job that they were being paid to do. Yep, and mind you, they weren't, weren't getting paid a whole lot. No, you're 100% right. And uh, all people have to do is go look Leafs Nation Network TV and take a look at some of those old vintage games and go back and look at some of the rosters and some of those teams in the 80s and even even the yeah. 90s and take a look at some of those hockey clubs. And it's it's heartbreaking for some of us Leaf fans. But we've got a uh, got to have another wrap here uh, another good show without and we want to thank him again for joining us uh, we do want to thank our friends at the hockey news uh, for you know bringing this help bringing us along again as we said anything all pertaining to hockey always look to hockey news for your source for for the game uh, established in 1947 uh, just go to thn.com/deal for your best value and subscription to the hockey news look for squid and i on Squid and the Ultimate Leaf Fan on Twitter. Look for us on our Ultimate Leaf Fan page, which would be on uh, Instagram or Facebook. Rick Five on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, Rick's 
exciting new book comes out next week, Catch 22, November 27th. You've got The Ultimate Road Trip, which is available now. Both books are available on Amazon and at Indigo or Chapters. His is on sale, mine's not. And as I told you guys at the beginning of the show, so you, look for those. Could you imagine, Mike, if you had planned that for this season? Boy, but I've been mad. Oh, I can, I can only imagine. Games. It was 70 games, 12 left. Boy, but I've been mad. Oh, oh. well, I can't, wait, I can't wait to delve into this tonight and uh, get into it. And uh, I, wonder, I, I wonder if there's a couple of pictures of me in here. Somewhere. There is a couple shots of you in there. We met the first game of the season and the last game of the season. So. Lot, that's right, yeah. Montreal and Toronto, so it was uh, very, very appropriate. So anyway, folks, we leave that with you. So watch for Catch-22 next week. We'll talk to you guys. Have a great week, everybody.